Good morning. I'm Rich Garrett, um, and uh, I am part of a community group, of a group of uh, five families, and we've been meeting together, I don't know, for about 15 years, uh, really praying over our parents, ourselves, our uh, kids, and it's just been a, a great experience. Um, and, you know, I just want to tell you about that and encourage you to do that as well. Um, and then I'm going to read a verse. I hope it comes up on the screen. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, you know, when James asked me uh, to do this this morning, I, th I thought, great, I get to be without a mask for a couple more minutes. So, <laughs> so thanks. Uh, so 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness of a value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying, is trust, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. All right. Great to... See you guys all today, and I, I'm excited to jump back into our series on who is this man called Jesus. Um, back in, in the 90s, I was working at Christian Supply in the Alderwood Mall. Uh, I don't know if you guys, any of you guys ever shopped there next to Lamont's back in the day. And, and, and back then, we were, the biggest sellers were Thomas Kincaid paintings, Precious Moments figurines, DT, DC Talk CDs, and the most popular thing of all was WWJD bracelets right back in the 90s. And I don't know if you guys ever had those, but it was a big craze. In fact, it was such a craze that it even went outside of the church. While working there, we'd regularly even have like goth kids coming in who as they entered over the threshold of Christian supply, it was like there were vampires being attacked by the light and they were like scared walking into the store and they would kind of come like very scared and, and, and buy their bracelets and kind of run out of the store scared that they were gonna, like zapped by God or something like that. It, was, it became a craze and, and we got these bracelets and, and, and the bracelet, the idea was that you would wear the bracelet and every time a situation arose, you would think, you'd look at the bracelet and say, what would Jesus do? So if you're getting angry at your spouse or something hopefully you'd stop look at the bracelet oh, what would jesus do well they would love my spouse okay i'll try and do that or if you're driving how would jesus drive what would jesus do how do i how do i do that here and and the idea came from a, a book written back in 1896 by a guy named charles sheldon he wrote a book called in his steps and in that book it was about a pastor who had realized that his life no longer looked like jesus in any way and so he thought you know what i'm just going to ask what would jesus do in every situation so that i can walk in his steps and become more like him I mean, and that's a great idea but dallas willard he, he wrote in, in his great book that's called the spirit of the disciplines and he points out a massive problem with that idea of just a foundational problem with it because in each case in that book and in real life as we seek to walk out what would jesus do the idea is that whenever a point arises where there's a tension or a struggle, that's when we ask the question. And the hope is that in that moment, at that moment, we will make a decision to live like Jesus and to do what Jesus would do in that moment without any prompting. That in that moment, we would become like Jesus in that moment. Now, and as a result, Dallas Willard calls this an, an absolutely fatal idea that will never work. Because it has no realization that in each of these situations, what Jesus did was a natural outflow of how he lived his life all the time, right? It wasn't just in a moment that he tried to act like himself or, or, or lean upon the Father. 
When an unclean leper walks up to Jesus, he doesn't stop and say, hmm, what would I do? Right? Or what would my father do? Right? But as the unclean leper walks towards him, and he's not feeling like, should I run away or not? Because he has trained himself, and he has become the kind of person that in that moment, he walks towards the leper, not being scared to walk away. Right? Anytime he's in a situation, Jesus is living out of the overflow of the love of the Father in his life, empowered by the Spirit, and he's responding in that way. When the Pharisees come against him and they start mocking him and telling him, you know, at least we're not born of fornication, at least we're not illegitimate children, Jesus doesn't sit and go, oh, what would my father do? What should I do? But he responds out of who he is, the person that God has been creating him to be and the work of the Spirit in his life. It's a natural outflow of who he is. When when he sees a temple filled with money changers and people oppressing the poor, again, he doesn't have to ask, what should I do? He does what comes naturally for him from someone who has devoted their life to the Father, who has become attuned to the Father's heart. And in that case, it involves making a whip and going to town on some guys, right? So in each instance, Jesus is, 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 is responding out of the depth of his relationship with the Father, fully empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's in complete communion with his Father. And he spontaneously responds to each situation in the way the Father would, right? With the heart of the Father. Jesus cultivated that incredible depth of relationship with his Father. And we looked at some of those passages last week, like in John chapter 4. In verse 9, he says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, right? The two are one. Or John chapter 10, verse 30 says, I and the Father are one. They have become one in that sense of the way that he is able to reflect the Father in all senses. And if we try to copy Jesus saying, what would Jesus do? We're in for a world of disappointment, pain, and exhaustion. Because there's a reason he's able to do what he did. One of my graduate professors, his name was Dr. Chris Hall. uh, Incredible man, currently the president of Renovare. But he, he gave a great example of his nephew playing baseball. And his nephew, this was back, I think, in the late 90s. His his nephew loved Greg Maddox, one of the greatest pitchers of all time for the Braves. And his nephew loved him and used to watch videos of him and trying to practice the way that he threw and, and wanted to be just like Greg Maddox in every single way. And so he got the jersey of Greg Maddox, he got shoes like him, he got a glove like him, and he practiced his wind-up to make sure that his wind-up and his throw style was exactly the same as that of Greg Maddox. And Hall, he went to his nephew's first baseball game that he was pitching. And he saw his nephew up there and he looked great, right? He, he looks good, he's looking like Maddox, he looked, he, his, his wind-up kind of looks the same, and he releases the ball and he's looking great. But then the ball, as it zings towards home plate, hits the ground about 10 feet in front of the plate, right? There's a major problem. He had studied, you could say, to be like him. He had tried, tried to be like him, but he was missing out on a very important element. Greg Maddox had trained for thousands of hours to become the person that he was, right? So as he could naturally throw a baseball, his nephew could not do that. He had not taken the time to train like Greg Maddox had trained. And so the same is with us. We can't copy Jesus very well. If we try in the moment to do what Jesus did, we're going to fail most of the time. Asking what would Jesus do in a tense situation or in an argument with a spouse or when you feel angry is often not very helpful. To decide in the moment to act like Jesus would act is kind of like me watching some YouTube videos of boxing and then expecting to be able to get in the ring with Mike Tyson or get into an octagon with with Conor McGregor, right? I'm going to get my butt kicked, right? Because I do not have the training and the experience that they have. Jesus didn't just say stop or stop and say like Jesus or father give me patience with Peter because he's really annoying right now He's doing the opposite of everything. I was supposed to do. What should I do pulling his hair out? Instead Jesus naturally responded in the way that he'd been trained to do 
And Jesus is a person for whom patience was part of who he was. Love is part of who he is. And he responds in love and patience in each and every situation. When he sees the leper or someone else deeply hurting, again, he doesn't have to stop and say, what should I do? He simply responds out of the Father's love that's so rooted in who he is and the way he lives that he loves spontaneously in each and every situation on the spot. Jesus had trained his whole life to be like his Father, to be a person who is loving and kind and generous and, and, and patient in all he does. You know, the last few weeks we've been looking at the life of Jesus, where he came from. We've been looking at his humanity. We're looking at what he did, how he did what he did as a human being, fully surrendered to the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Again, if you haven't listened to him, please go back and listen to the last couple messages as the foundation for where we're going in this fall. But the question is, how did he cultivate that life so attuned to the Father and to the Spirit as we talked about last week? Well, well he, he trained himself to do so. That's how he did it. He ordered his life in such a way that by the age of around 30, he became the kind of person who could live this spirit-empowered life completely dependent upon the Father, where he could experience joy in the midst of pain, love in the midst of any attack. And I've been saying a lot that that our calling is is to experience the life that God created us for, right? The, The life that he shares with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, a life of joy and delight and love and fellowship. We're called to enter into that life. We're to live in love like Jesus. But this isn't something we just decide in the moment that we're going to access or do. It's a matter of of just just desiring to do this isn't enough. We can't just decide in a moment, just like, I'd really want to live that life and expect that for to be what comes out of us. You know, I can't choose in the moment today to run a marathon under four hours. No matter how bad I wanted to, there's nothing I could do that could convince my body to run a marathon in four hours today, if you ask me. Even if you offered me $1 billion, James, go run a marathon today in under four hours, I simply can't do it. Although there's some of you that probably could, I could not. I've not trained that way in my body. The just desire alone is not enough, right? I can't will myself to do what is impossible for me to do right now. However, if my greatest goal was to run a marathon in under four hours, and I started training today for the next couple of years, daily, intensely training, I could actually most likely do it within a couple of years. I could train myself to do what is currently impossible. I could train myself to make it very possible to do. Or for example, take a master violinist or a musician, a celloist or, or someone. When, when you watch a video of them pl- playing their music, I mean, it, it, it's so amazing. It's like the bow is an extension of their arm as they play. It's effortless. It just looks natural when they play. I mean, go home when you get home and watch a YouTube video of like Caroline Campbell or the two cellos. I mean, it's just amazing to watch them because they're having so much fun playing such insanely complex pieces of music. It just comes so easy, it looks like for them, right? Whereas if I were to pick up a, a, a bow and try and play, it would sound horrific. My dad used to say that when I was learning to play the saxophone as a kid, that it sounded like I was strangling a goose. That's the way that the sound they used to always make it. He was very proud of my goose strangling. Um, right? The only hope I could ever have of playing a music in any way like them would be if I devoted years and years and years to training, endless hours to be able to will, not will myself, but to train myself to play like that. Now, our opening passage addresses this directly. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, he says, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every single way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, 
who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We must train for godliness, is what Paul says, and it has incredible value. Paul's understanding of following Jesus is not that we're just chilling on a lazy river, going wherever the current would take us. But he has this understanding of living this cruciform life, this cross-shaped life that, that Jesus spoke of. For example, in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. When Paul was writing to the church of, of Corinth, he describes this like, like training for the, the Isthmian Games, which were just like the Olympics, but held every two years in the city of Corinth. And he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. So they do it to obtain a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable, because the crown they would get was made of leaves, right? It would perish. 26, therefore, I run in such a way as not to run aimlessly, but I box in such a way as to avoid just hitting air. But I strictly discipline my body. The, the Greek there for discipline is actually a box, a Greek word for boxing, meaning to beat black and blue, to beat up. That's the actual Greek word that's being used there. So I, I strictly discipline or I beat my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, Paul isn't saying that we should hurt ourselves and beat ourselves black and blue, but he's recognizing that there is an effort a, that is involved, a striving involved, in order for us to be able to live the life that Christ has called us to live. If we want to experience the freedom that Christ has called us to, to experience, if we want to experience that abundant life, there is some effort involved in realigning our loves and our lives in order to be more like his. Now, some Christians, they recoil at the idea of effort because some of us has a false understanding that grace means it doesn't take any effort. Right? I, I love the way Dallas Willard says it. He talks about how, um, he says, Christians burn through, this is a different quote, but Christians burn through uh, grace the same way that like jets, uh, 747s burn through jet fuel. Right? The idea that we as Christians, everything we do is by the grace of God. Grace is required for all of it. And he says, goes on, he says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning, right? The issue is earning our salvation, but there is a deep effort that is involved in us realigning our lives and our loves in order to be, experience the freedom that Christ has for us, similar to a violinist or a celloist or so a marathon runner. You know, we cannot live as Christ lived with his love and his power unless we adopt his way of life. I'm going to quote from some of my notes of, of Dr. Chris Hall here, but, but Jesus, even though he was God incarnate, he was fully human. He had to learn to obey just as we do. And as we talked about last week, he had to memorize scripture. He, had to re he repeated it endlessly in order to memorize it. He didn't just know it from birth. He spent countless hours in prayer, countless hours in solitude and studying the word. Jesus trained himself to be the kind of person for whom loving others and loving God came naturally and spontaneously. He trained himself in that way. And he was able to do these things because of who he is, but even more so because of the manner of life that he chose to live. The goal of being a disciple or a follower, an apprentice of Jesus, is to become more like Christ, specifically in our ability to love and respond spontaneously to God in whatever he brings into our lives, that we would naturally live and love the way that he does. So how do we do that? How do we train to become more like him? Well, we do it by adopting the same practices that he adopted. Instead of asking, what would Jesus do in any given situation? We should ask instead, what did Jesus do in order to do what he did? So W-J-D-J-T-D-H-D, probably wouldn't sell as many bracelets. But, but the question is not, what would Jesus do? 
But what did he do in order to do what he did? How did Jesus become the person that he was? How does he show perfect love in every situation, right? Because if we just ask, what would Jesus do? That's overwhelming because he would show perfect love always. Perfect patience in all situations. Perfect kindness always. That's a little overwhelming to try to be like him. He would always have compassion. But what did Jesus do in order to do what he did? How did he order his life? So that he was that attuned to the Father, the Son, or the Spirit. How did he have the, the patience and the calmness was like his default setting. How did he train for that to be normal for him? And we see how he ordered his life in scriptures. The rhythms that he spent most of his time on. And some call these spiritual disciplines. Things like prayer and solitude and silence and celebration and service and worship and, and Bible study. And if we look at Jesus' life, and it's just his prayer life, we get a great window into this. So we'll look at a few of these. So right after Jesus feeds the 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14, he says this. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. So he spent the whole day in prayer, or the whole evening in prayer by himself. Luke 6. This is right before choosing the 12 disciples. He says, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Or Mark chapter 1, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed, right? This is just normal for him. Or Luke 5, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray, often. Luke 9, and it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. So he's praying even when others are with him, and he questioned them, saying, who do people say that I am? Or Luke 11, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples say to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. So here we have the context to the Lord's prayer, right? Because that's where he gives it. Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's prayer. The context isn't Jesus just, you know, teaching on prayer, but he's praying and his disciples see his prayer life and say, Jesus, teach us to pray like you do. Or you look at the entirety of John chapter 14 verse through 17. Those three chapters, just all of them are dealing with So those four chapters. Or Luke 22, verse 39, he says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. As usual, he went to the Mount of Olives. That's the Garden of the Gethsemane. The Garden of the Gethsemane wasn't just when Jesus was, you know, dealing with sweating out blood trying before crucifixion. That was like his comfy chair in his house, right? That was his place of solitude, that place that he went to be alone regularly, often. That was like his quiet place with God was the Garden of Gethsemane. Or look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, where it says, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he, Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them. So what is Jesus' role right now, his primary role? It's praying. Still to this day, his primary role is praying for us today. This is how Jesus ordered his life. Jesus, the Son of God, who's in perfect communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit, knew that he needed consistent and extended times alone with his Father. And, and this isn't just reading the Bible in a year of just filling it with words. This is sitting and listening and communicating with God, praying and listening to God. He knew he needed this, and he's the Son of God. How much more do we, in our far more broken state, require a rhythm of being with our Heavenly Father, Son, and Spirit? We must train in similar ways as Jesus if we have any hope of becoming more and more like him. You know, sometimes this can feel tiring, like this can be like too much, like trying to do this seems overwhelming, and it is if we try for it. That's why I love John Ortberg, who was a disciple of, uh, of Dallas Willard. He says, there is an immense difference between training to do something and trying to do something, or the opposite way, right? Trying to become more like Jesus can be exhausting. 
every attempt can just feel like a failure, right? Because what his life is so much perfection and beauty, just trying to be like him, it only heightens our weaknesses. We're always missing the mark if we're trying to be like Jesus. Even huge leaps forward can still feel like failures because we're trying to be like him. We're trying to measure up and we fail no matter how good we do. But training, that's a totally different story. So an example from running. If you had asked me a year ago, James, would you go try and run three miles straight? I would have laughed at you, right? I've hated running my entire life, even when I was in football and basketball in high school. Clearly, I don't have a runner's body. I've hated running my entire, never in my life have I run more than a mile, right? And if I tried to try to run three miles, I'd be exhausted, I'd be tired, and I'd give up after a few days. Because even if I run a few blocks or a one mile, it still wasn't far enough, it'd be exhausting. But a year ago, I just honestly felt convicted in this area, and I, I decided to try training this. It wasn't even a discipline. It had more to do with me wanting to just be able to keep up with my kids and get in better shape. And, and so I started the, the Couch to 5K program, if you've ever heard of that. And so I began and doing what I could do. It was in my power. I began walking every other day and then pushing a little bit towards jogging. And it's, it's nothing special. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing how bad I was at and how long it took. But I mean, each day, every other day, I'd go walk and a little more jogging. Eventually, it was more jogging and less walking. And after a few, after a few months, it was primarily jogging. And, and soon enough, I was jogging regularly three miles a, a day a few times a week, right? And I became a kind of person who very naturally could run a few miles at a time, right? A year ago, that would have been impossible for me. Now, if you had told me just to try to run three miles, impossible, I would have given up after a few weeks. But to train step by step in that process, recognizing that it's a journey, totally different situation, right? Training is doing what is in our power and growing step by step until eventually we're able to do quite naturally what currently is impossible for us to do. Playing an instrument, or, or running a 5K, or, or learning a foreign language, or public speaking without fear. All these we can train to do. I loved hearing the story of Bill Hunter, our bassist, who was playing this morning. Uh, I mean, it was, he was telling me just a few years ago, he couldn't play bass at all. But he heard the church needed bassists, and so what did he do? He started training to learn how to play bass, right? I appreciate that, Bill, right? And now he plays almost every single week because he trained to be able to do that, right? Training ourselves become, to become more like Christ, though, is a whole lot more fun than training for a marathon, unless you're weird and like running, right? It, it can be very, very different than the experience as well because it's actually empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not just of our own efforts. The Holy Spirit is there each step of the way, and each stage of the journey in training to be more like Jesus, we experience more of his life, more of his joy, more freedom, more of his delight. We grow in our capacity to love God and love others. Nothing is more worthy of training for. I mean, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, he says in verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like god in true righteousness and holiness we must put on that new self he says and paul describes the christian walk again putting on the new self that training for godliness now dallas willard he takes this idea of putting on and he compares it to spiritual disciplines in his wonderful book called the great omission and he says this spiritual disciplines are activities in our power that we engage in to enable us to do what we cannot do by direct effort right now. He goes on to say, in general then, we put on, that's that language of Paul, we put on the new person by regular activities that are in our power. For like running, it would start off with walking. And we become what we could not be by direct effort, right? We grow. If we take note of and follow Jesus in what he did when he was not ministering or teaching, that's doing what he did to do what he did, 
we will find ourselves led and enabled to behave as he did when he was on the spot, right? We can do as he did if we train like he trained. Now, we're gonna be talking a lot more about spiritual disciplines in the next year. As, as we wanna become more and more like Christ, I mean, it's just a reality. We need to conform our lives. Jesus stated it so clearly in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, he says this, students are not greater than their teacher, but the student who is fully trained will become like the teacher, right? I want to be a student of Jesus, right? I don't want to just be a believer who can, has a mental assent that Jesus is real and he existed, but I want to be his follower, his disciple, his apprentice. I want to grow in living and loving more like him. I want my loves to become the things that he loves, right? I want my life to reflect his life. That's what I long for. And that means I need to practice the things that he did. It means I need to train my heart, my mind, my body, my soul to become more like him, to, be kind, to become the kind of person who naturally and spontaneously loves people in the midst of difficulty, who responds to anger and malice in ways that is gentle and kind, who can speak to people who have radically different ideas than me about theology or sexual identity or politics or masks or vaccines, and I can speak to them with love and gentleness, seeking to know who they are, assuming the best about them and their intentions, not assuming the worst, not comparing their weaknesses to my strengths. Instead, I can learn to love them and embrace them just like Jesus would. That's what I want, right? And I hope it's what we all want. And that means I must train for godliness. I must reorder my life in such a way that that becomes natural. And I've been training in this for, for quite a few years in different ways. And I'm going to use a couple of my own examples. And really, I want to be honest, that these aren't because I'm great at this. It's because I'm terrible at it. And because I think it's just an average example for anyone. If I said I was trying to be like Jesus, you know what? I'd be ashamed because I am so far from it. If I was trying to be like him each day, it's just exhausting because even my greatest steps forward are still going to feel like failures in light of who he is. But I'm not just trying. I am training to be more like him. I am reordering my life. I'm not trying to act like him. I'm trying to become like him. Dallas Willard, I love it. He says that training doesn't always have to be an unpleasant thing. Well, if you're training for a marathon, then obviously you've got to run and probably change your diet. But if you're training for a pie-eating contest, <laughs> eat lots of pie, right? If you're training for joy, well, you should be doing things that are joyful. If you're training to love and serve others, that involves loving and serving others. That's awesome. It's incredible. And, and so there's some examples from my life in this regard. So over the years, I've practiced many different kinds of disciplines. And, and uh, years ago, I was, for example, I was trying to grow in the area of encouraging others. I was deeply convicted. I was studying through the book of Acts, and I saw Barnabas was given the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And it made me think, what name would others give me? And I thought, son of sarcasm or son of something far less flattering. And I realized all of a sudden that, that I was not an encouraging person, that people weren't delighted to be around me. I was kind of a... a, a not always the kindest with dry humor and sarcasm. And so I said, Lord, I want to grow in this. I want to increase my capacity to speak words of life over others. And so what I did is every day I made a list in the morning of three names of people that I knew I would see that I would encourage. And it started off really awkwardly. I'd be like, uh, hey, Steve, nice shoes, right? Or, uh, hey, Pam, uh, your hair looks nice today, right? It was just awkward. I didn't, I didn't have the language for it. I didn't have the heart for it. But as I kept going week after week, month after month, the encouragement started getting more specific more ability for me to hear from the Lord what he wanted to say to people. And I started doing this very commonly and very easily where it didn't take a list anymore. And I started just encouraging people all the time. I'll never forget about a year into me practicing this discipline. It was my birthday and my ministry team was around me and they were encouraging me for my birthday. And 
All the first four or five people that spoke, they all said something very similar. The first thing they said of all the things was, James, you're such an encouraging person, right? That when, when, when you speak, it's, you don't just give like general lame encouragements, but it's like you're trying to see us through Jesus' eyes and, and call out the best of us, and we're just so grateful for it. At that moment, I just burst into tears because up to that point, I had felt that I was just trying to be encouraging. I recognized something had shifted in the last six months where I was no longer trying. It wasn't even just training. I wasn't even thinking about it. It was coming naturally. I had now become the kind of person who was naturally caring for others and encouraging them in deep and wonderful ways. That had become part of who I was. That discipline was no longer a discipline. It was just part of who I was, right? That's what spiritual disciplines are for. They're to, to rewire who we are because each discipline highlights a weakness. It's not about just trying to do a bunch of different disciplines, right? It, it's, they're things that we're trying to grow in. The goal is not to just have a bunch of these and, and feel, wow, how spiritual we are. Another great quote from Dallas is he says, we have to live in such a way that the, or measure spiritual maturity in such a way that the Pharisees don't win, right? We have to live in such a way that things we measure, it's not just about what we do and how many things we're doing. In that case, the Pharisees are the greatest, but we must do it where it's about who we're becoming, becoming more and more like Jesus. Are we living and loving more like him? And training to live in more like our teacher Jesus is incredibly freeing and incredibly rewarding. It brings life. A more recent area that I've been training in to experience more life of Jesus and freedom is in creating space in the evenings to be with him. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm the kind of person that when I put my, put my head on the pillow, I'm out. Within seconds, sometimes minutes. Not my wife's favorite thing, because it's often while she's talking, um, and we're, I'm growing on that. Uh, but it's, it's something that, uh, that I, just, I naturally just fall asleep when, I turn, when, when, I, when I'm ready for bed. And so one of the things I've been wanting to do is I was challenged. Is, uh, I was listening to Pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback Church, and he was doing a podcast for his pastors. And he described a practice he was having all his guys do, and it was called his word, first word, his word, last word. Basically, take an open paper Bible, makes it has to be paper, stick it on your nightstand, and every night before bed, make sure you read a chapter or two and spend a few minutes in prayer as the last thing you do before you go to sleep. And then in the morning, the very first thing you do before anything else, you grab that Bible, pick up where you finished, keep reading a couple chapters, or just one chapter even, and, say, uh, and, and spend some time in prayer with the Lord, right? And reorienting our hearts and our minds. Now, this has been one of the harder things I've tried to practice because I'm terrible at keeping my brain alert at night, right? I'm definitely, an, I'm a morning person, and I actually can be a night person too, but not when my head hits the pillow. I'm out. And so I've had to learn how to do this. And you know, I want to be honest, I'm failing more than I'm succeeding right now. I started this like six months ago, and it's honestly been amazing. I love the, the, the reality of having the word in my mind as I go to sleep and praying, because I've never done that in my life before. But it's really hard for me. But yet it creates incredible joy. And right now, I'm probably doing it like 40% of the time. Maybe 30% if Sarah's watching this, right? So she's <laughs> home with the kids right now. Maybe 35, 40. I'm right, I mean, honestly, that's about where I'm at of the time that I'm doing it regularly. But I'm growing, and it might take me another decade for it to be natural because of my personality. But yet the cool thing is, this striving and the effort to do it is not like it's an exhausting thing. Oh, woe is me. I'm not doing it well enough. Every time I do it, it's awesome, and I rejoice. And if I skip it, oh, well. I went to sleep. It's not a big deal, but it gives life. And that's what the spiritual dis disciplines do. They bring life. There's no shame or beating myself up. My longest ongoing training in a spiritual discipline has been going on for more than a decade now, and I'm still terrible at it, but it's my favorite one of all. And that's learning to be able to just pray throughout the day and become more aware of God's presence. Uh, again, Brother Lawrence, we talked about last week, called it practicing the presence of God. This is my favorite one of all. It's given me more life than anything else, but I do it probably around 1%, maybe 2% of the day max do I actually have success. I fail about 98 to 99% of the time on this one. But 
That 1% of the time of the day that I remember throughout those days or hours when I'm sitting down with someone at a meal or sitting down at lunch with someone or with my kids or up in the middle of the night or preparing for the sermon or even standing up here giving the sermon, I remember, oh, Jesus, thank you that you're here with me. Help me to see this person who's sitting across from me through your eyes. Or, Lord, as I'm laying awake at sleep at night and just, Lord, help me to remember that you're right here with me. Lord, what would you have me pray for as I lay here awake? What are you doing right now, Lord, in the lives of the people I care about? Or as I'm driving in my car and I'm just distracted by what's going on, just, oh, Jesus, thank you that we get to drive together. And I imagine him just sitting on the seat next to me and I just begin to just talk with him and just say, Lord, what are you doing right now? How can I get on board with what you're up to right now in this day? How can I prepare for what you're doing today? Whatever it is. You know, I, I wrote a, a paper for my, my studies one time on practicing the presence of God. And it was after a year of practicing, my first year. At the end of the first year, I said, you know what? I'm, right now, I'm maybe at 1% of the time, I'm actually doing this well. I'm failing 99%. But it's so radically changed my life that I know I'm committing the rest of my life to this. Just being able to engage with God throughout the day. And at that time, maybe it was 10 or 12 times a day I'd actually remember throughout the entire day. And I finished it by just saying, I can't imagine what life will be like when I can do this just 2% of the day, right? And, and honestly, I'm failing most of the time, but just those simple times of success have radically changed my life. And it doesn't leave me striving. It doesn't leave me angry or bitter or anything because it creates life. Every attempt that I do for this, it creates more life. John Ortberg says it in, in one of, another one of his quotes. He says, practices such as reading scripture and praying are not, or sorry, and praying are important, not because they prove how spiritual we are, that would just make us Pharisees, but because God can use them to lead us into life, his eternal life. And that's been my experience. I want to grow in living and loving more like Jesus. And that means I need to adopt his practices. And I want to state this categorically clear to make sure everyone hears this. God's love is not going to be any greater for us if we do more disciplines or less disciplines. This is nothing about him loving us. This is nothing about getting more of his favor. This is not about anything more than, 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 than us wanting to experience more of his life and more of his freedom and our capacity to love others. God is not impressed with what we do. He's not impressed with any of these efforts. And it's not about earning anything. Doing this, again, is wanting to experience more freedom and of his love pouring out of our lives into those around us. It's not about showing our devotion. So, so what disciplines can we do? What can be helpful for us today if this isn't your normal practice? Well, John Orper, he gives two categories that I like just kind of seeing in. And the first one is the category of engagement. There are disciplines of engagement, things I need to do that I normally don't do. So this would be things like I need to pray or study scripture or spend time in solitude and reading the Bible or encouraging others. These are things I can adopt saying, here's things I want to do. The other category is things of abstaining, not doing things that I normally do. So this would be things like fasting or silence or practicing not having the last word in a conversation, which is such a beautiful thing to practice. So example, if, if my problem is gossip, I should probably practice a discipline that involves silence, right, of not speaking in situations. If I'm struggling with pornography or another addiction, one of the greatest things to practice is actually fasting because it learns to train the body to not always get what it wants. So don't just pick a random discipline and try to be a better person. It's not about pull yourself by your own bootstraps. It's not a self-help theory. But identify one or maybe even two areas where you're not experiencing life where you're not experiencing life that you know you desire with God or there's experiencing pain, start small. It shouldn't be overwhelming. This is not a race to fix something broken. It is a journey we are on with Jesus. And hear this. Jesus is far more interested, far, far more interested in us and in you than he is and in our journey than he is in trying to get us to some future place of perfection. 
right? He has eternity for that, right? We have eternity to be able to deal with all the stuff we're dealing with. It's not a rush. We're in no hurry to do this. This isn't about when I get there because there's always going to be another hill to climb. It's not about that, but it's I want to experience more of his life that he's called me and created me for here and now. There is no hurry to this. We do not want to become Pharisees. None of this is a have to. If it becomes that, just toss it out and stop doing that. I had to stop memorizing scripture for a long season of time because it started, I started doing it for like earning something. And so even though it's a good thing, I stopped. I haven't memorized scripture in like 10 years. I probably should start again sometime, but I've not been the area that he's told me to do. I just stopped it because it started messing with my head and it became like a, a thing that I was like climbing a ladder in. So I just stopped doing it. I know someone had to stop encouraging people. Because they realized they were encouraging for the sake of the favor that they would get by encouraging others, and it was becoming manipulation. But for us, for example, maybe you found yourself becoming self-centered during the pandemic, and you found because of masks and distancing and all this other stuff that you're just living in your own bubble. A wonderful practice would say, Lord, I need to engage with the world around me. I need to see people who I don't normally see. And so you need to do a discipline that involves doing that. Maybe it's walking around your neighborhood or talking to neighbors or, or coming here to church. And every time you get here, you specifically, before and after church, go speak with people you don't know. Open your eyes up to the world around you. Break the selfishness. And don't just say hi, but get to know them and hear some of their story or invite someone over for a meal. Or maybe you've been struggling with pornography or, or alcohol addiction or buying stuff you don't need or, or craving the newest iPhone. Maybe you're looking at tomorrow's new release of the new Apple event that's going on. And you already need it even though you don't even know what it is, right? You're, just, you're living the American dream of, of, of struggling with self-control and want, 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 want. Maybe if it's not going to cause a health problem, one of the greatest disciplines you can practice is fast once a week, one day a week, no food. And use that as a way to tell your body you don't get everything you want when you want it. And train yourself in that way until it's no longer that to be the primary issue, right? And use those times of meals instead to be able to seek after the Lord and to spend time in prayer. Or maybe you actually don't, you, you, you need to spend more time in the Word and prayer and you find you don't do it. My first question to you in that is where do you charge your phone? Honestly, where do you charge your phone? If you're struggling to actually have time to spend with God, does your phone charge right next to your bed? Are you using it late into the night, scrolling through Facebook and Instagram's endless algorithms, keeping you up into the night? Or do you have a TV or an iPad that you're watching late into the evening on a regular basis? It is the easiest thing to shift in our lives overnight to make a difference that will give us time and the energy to spend time and actually spending a few minutes a day in prayer is to take the phone away from our nightstand. If it has to be in the room, charge it on the other side of the room, but ideally put your phone to bed before you do in another room. Leave it out. Get rid of it in that space so the bed becomes a place if you're married for you and your spouse and you and the Lord, right? So you can get up and have time to be with him because there is no rhythm more central to the life of Christ than time alone with his father. And that if you're not spending time alone with him and not just reading as much Bible as you can read, but yes, it's good to read, but specifically spending time communing with him, listening to him, praying with him. You got to start there because that is the lifeblood of Jesus with his father. And it's the easiest and largest shift we can make. There are no shortcuts when it comes to spiritual disciplines and to coming to be more like Christ. There's no shortcuts in that regards. But God is not in the business of setting high bars for us either. So this should not be a have to, it is a get to. And so in finishing, I want to give us one book recommendation as we finish this morning. It's my favorite book I've, re I've read the entire, this past year. I, I read quite a bit, so that's, that's not just a small statement. But, 
Um, I can't recommend it enough. It's called An Invitation to the Life of Jesus, Invitation to the Jesus Life by Jan Johnson. She was someone that did a lot of the arranging of Dallas Willard's teachings and his lectures and has done a lot, written a lot of books since then. I just found it. It's been written a long time ago. I just found it. I'm giving it to everyone I know because it is one of the best I have found in this season for being able to use as a devotional with practices at the end of every chapter and meditations to be able to do, to be able to kind of recenter myself on the life of who Jesus is. I cannot recommend this book high enough for people. Please buy it, read it, and don't just read it. Do the practices and the meditations because God is asking us to train to be like him not just to try in all those ways, right? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this morning. I thank you that your love for us is unconditional. It's not based upon any degree of trying or training or any spiritual disciplines we can do. If that is, it's the Pharisees are the best of the bunch, but they aren't. Instead, Lord, you just want to be with us. And so, Lord, first and foremost, I just thank you that your unconditional love is for us more than we could ever comprehend. And Lord, if there's anyone who's hearing this message as condemnation or they're hearing it as another striving of, oh no, that sounds exhausting. Lord, I pray you would help us just to toss it out, Lord, and, and those parts that are causing that. But Lord, we want to become more like you as your children. We want to be your followers and, and your apprentices and your disciples, Jesus. And so Lord, I pray you would help us identify areas where we're not experiencing your life. And with gentleness and the kindness of the Jesus who says that a bruised reed you do not break, a smoldering wick you do not snuff out because of your gentleness and your love. You say that... that, that you're, you're, you're burdened. Like we should cast our burdens upon you, Lord. For your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Jesus, may you help us walk into a place of being with you and enjoying you and experiencing more of your life. Amen.